If you're going to run a great business, you've got to have great people, and finding them is a huge part of that puzzle. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. ZipRecruiter.com has a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. It identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. The right candidates are out there. You can find them, but ZipRecruiter is how. Right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. One more time, try it for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. ZipRecruiter, it's the smartest way to hire. Once you check out their interface and you see those candidates come right into your inbox, you're going to realize it's a great choice. ZipRecruiter.com slash buck you are entering the freedom hut disney cancels roseanne because of racist tweets we'll talk about that and how some are trying to make this a first amendment issue also some photos of children in detention at my immigration centers over the weekend that had a lot of media interest until all of a sudden they didn't. Plus, a senior North Korean former intelligence official on his way to New York City to kickstart what could be a restarted summit on June 12th. That and much more coming up. This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission, or mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small make, make no mistake. America. Ready. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Great to have you here with me, as always. Very much appreciate your time. Appreciate that I get a chance to be with all of you fine patriots once again, near and far. I'm here in the swamp, live from the swamp, as I uh, as I tend to be these days. I will give you uh, more details on that as soon as I can. Still waiting for the all clear on it. I think it'll be probably now next week when the official announcement comes out. Some of you probably have already figured out what's going on, why I'm down here in the swamp, but it's not official yet. I mean, and some of you might have even read it in some places. Can neither confirm nor deny what has been written in, say, the Washington Post about what I'm doing right now. But nonetheless, there are some there's some stuff to uh, to get to, and we will get to it. I don't plan on spending too much time today of our show. I, I find that we have so much to get to of substance, uh, so much that is worth our our effort and energy and and thought processes that. Something that's very obvious and straightforward and clear cut. We'll talk about it, but not something that we have to spend too much time on. And that is what happened with Roseanne today. Uh, ABC has canceled the reboot of Roseanne's show because, in, in case you didn't see it, uh, she wrote something a very openly overtly racist about uh about valerie jarrett specifically so she's done uh it's it's all over i mean the show is 
is and I think the show at one point had 18 million viewers. So this was going to be they expect a big money maker uh, for ABC, and she was dropped. She was dropped by her talent agency. She's the show has been dropped. I mean this this is complete and utter uh, career self immolation by uh, by Roseanne Barr, and it's. Uh, in no way surprising, given what she said. Uh, it's not not a surprise. Um, the tweet, and this is from FoxNews.com, uh, there was a politically charged tweet she sent linking Chelsea Clinton to donor George Soros and a racially charged tweet saying Jarrett, who is African-American and born in Iran, is like the Muslim Brotherhood and Planet of the Apes had a baby. End quote. Uh, that's it. You're you're done. And she, you know, you're, you're Roseanne. You're done there. there. You're you're fired. There's nothing. There's no way around it. There shouldn't be any way around it. Uh, we live with the consequences of our actions. I, I'm seeing some out there in social media commentary land. Some people say, "Well, it's a." It's a First Amendment issue. No, I take you to exactly where I did with the NFL's policy on kneeling during the anthem. Not that these are similar situations, but I'm just saying with the free speech uh, episode that I used to illustrate how a a private employer has to be able to set boundaries. And there can't be zero standards for speech and conduct in, in the workplace. As I said to you, does anyone really think that you could walk up to your boss, as much fun as it may be for you, although I'm sure some of you think your boss is a lovely person. Uh, Perhaps most, perhaps all of you think your boss is a lovely person. But I don't believe that any of you are under the impression, I'm certainly not under the impression, that I could walk up to my uh, employer and and say whatever I want. I mean, curse him out or curse her out, tell him or her what I really think of, of that person, and just let it rip, and then walk away and be like, well, you know, I was just expressing my First Amendment rights. The First Amendment only applies to government action as a function of law. We always separate this out because that's important. right? It's a different thing. You know, the government cannot come in and say, hey, Roseanne, uh, you know, we're, we're now going to find, we're, we're now going to punish you even more and send you to prison or something because of your racist tweet. Government can't do that. And that's a for now I will note that there are some people who think that the First Amendment doesn't protect hate speech or racist speech. I think those people are wrong. And you know, that that's another component of this debate, this discussion. As I told you, the the guy who was on the Long Island Railroad recently, which I was actually on uh I was on that railroad this past weekend. Side note, uh that guy said really nasty racist stuff, but didn't commit a crime. And when they start to say, well, it was racial menacing or something. No, it was an argument between a jerk and uh, I think two women. And he said things he shouldn't say. He'll be publicly shamed for it because it was all on video. But you can't threaten to lock people up for that. Private employer is different. Private employer can make decisions about you based on your conduct that are that this is separate from uh, this is separate from the issue of whether the government can intervene based on the content of your speech or your activism or whatever it may be. And, you know, anyone who wants to sort of test this theory out, 
Is there a job you think in America right now where you could walk around and just say the most racist thing imaginable and face zero consequence? I think the answer is obviously no. In fact, we really have the other issue in this country, which is now you have people who are getting in trouble for uh, alleged racial incidents or things that are much more in, the, in a gray zone, on the borderline, not clear, not intentional. But that doesn't mean that there's no such thing as too, you know, too racist, in this case, too racist for not just TV, but you know, any, any job or profession, right? There's going to be consequences. And she has now faced the consequences, and, and that's that. I, I would just note a, a few more things about this. And like I said, by the way, if any of you have more thoughts you want to add on to this, uh, if you think I've, there's a part of this that I'm missing or there's something else that you uh, would like to add into our discussion, 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825. I'm just say this, uh, Roseanne. Uh, I feel I feel badly. You know, Valerie Jarrett's already uh, spoken on the issue. By the way, I don't know if uh, do we have do we have that audio, uh, producer Brandon. I know she's. We I don't think if we get it, we can play it maybe later. But I heard the audio, and she just said, "Look, you know, racism is real, and it was racist, and uh, nothing surprising." Um, and I think she's likely to just want to you know move on with her life as she should uh you know Roseanne's already been fired the show's been canceled I feel badly and, and actually Valerie Jarrett said you know other people don't have friends and allies who come to their defense immediately so you know I mean Valerie Jarrett's a prominent public person with uh a lot of uh you know public relations firepower at her disposal as, as we've seen today other people don't have that but I feel badly for the, I'm assuming, the people that had nothing to do with this tweet uh, who lost their jobs. You know, a show like this gets canceled, people don't have jobs. Also, fellow uh, actors that appear with her in this, you know, this may have been really a, a, big, a big break in their career. It may have been something that, and now they're all kind of tainted by this too, even though they didn't, you know, they had nothing to do with this. This is Roseanne tweeting herself, you know, late at night. So I feel badly for them. And then just, I've said this so many times before, for a lot of people, you know, Twitter, Twitter gets people into trouble. You know, Twitter, people don't, they don't think through what they're going to write. They don't think through how something will come across. And in some cases, it's just a window into a person's mind that it is not, it is not to their benefit that the public knows what they think. Uh, I think that's what that's what we had here. I mean, that's you know, there are close there are jokes that are close calls. There are jokes that are misconstrued. There are sometimes when you say, okay, somebody could have said that, and you know, it was off the cuff or what. With Roseanne, this this was uh, this wasn't just over the line. This was across the you know the red line. I mean, this is a there's a no go zone, and uh, and she she went there and she's suffering the consequences. I don't have much more on that. Uh, I, th- I think that really covers it. I, this is now dominating, dominating the the news coverage for the the day. I mean, this is a twenty four hour Roseanne athon now as a result of this. A lot of people on the left are going to say that this is uh, indicative of the realities of of racism. You know, racism today it's much more prevalent, so that's going to be certainly be a part of this discussion. Um, Left wing activists, a lot of people will just be pointing at this and saying, "See." Uh, it has really reminded me actually a little bit of the 
um, meltdown that I forget it. He played uh, Kramer on Seinfeld. I forget his uh, Michael Richards. Thanks, Brandon. Uh, Michael Richards had, if you remember, when he was a stand-up, where he just he just went into just like racial hatred mode up on stage out of nowhere, um, and you know that guy's never been the same. Uh, understandably so. You know, so this is uh, they're going to continue to talk about this, but I don't think there's much much more to take away from other than yeah, there's still people that say very dumb racist things, and you know, I, I had Herman Cain on right before me on Fox, and he said. You know, that he said that he doesn't believe, and this is what Herman Cain said, uh, that Roseanne is a racist, but what she wrote was definitely racist. Well, I'll uh, let Mr. Cain, let Mr. Cain's quote speak for itself there on that one. Um, And uh, with that, I want to get to a whole bunch of other policy issues today. Other things that are just up on the radar we should be talking about. Uh, the Starbucks training that happened today, they shut down for a few hours. What I really think about that, a reparations happy hour. We'll talk about that in the third hour. Uh, North Korea, obviously, is going to be part of our discussion today. And and certainly we'll spend some time on what is going on at the border uh, with parents being separated from their children. And people are very uh, heated over whether this is a a new Trump initiative. There are photos that are making the rounds among journalists. They're getting shared. There's a lot of stuff going on there at the border. I want to talk to you about. And oh yes, also of course RussiaGate spying and all that stuff. It's getting worse and worse for the other side. Uh, they they're really getting desperate here. I'm I'm seeing analysis now where people are saying, well, you know, we'll just never really know what happened here because classified. Mm-mm. No such thing as. Super duper classified in all, in all cases, even the president can't actually get to this information. That doesn't that's not how it works. So if they're hoping to just hide in the oh, it's also classified, uh, that's not gonna work. That's that's gonna be an issue for them. And we'll get into that spygate stuff coming up here in just a few minutes. Uh, 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825. Much more coming. Stay with me. I think we have to turn it into a teaching moment. I'm fine. I'm worried about all the people out there who don't have a circle of friends and followers who come right to their defense. The person who's walking down the street minding their own business and they see somebody cling to their purse or want to cross the street. Or every black parent I know who has a boy who has to sit down and have a conversation, the talk, as we call it. And those, as you say, those ordinary um, examples of racism that happen every single day. That was Valerie Jarrett's statement, so I told you we would play it, and there you have it. Uh, we got a couple callers who want to talk Roseanne, and then we will move on to the uh, issue of parents being separated from children at the border. What's really happening here? What's not? So much social media, dare I say, fire and fury over this one uh, uh, over the past weekend. But we have Denver calling in from Houston. One day we'll have Houston calling in from Denver. Good to talk to you. How you doing, Buck? Shields high, brother. Shields high. Yeah. Thank you for calling. Oh, yes, sir. Uh, what I want to mention is about the Roseanne issue. You know, obviously that was a pretty harsh comment that she made. 
But, you know, at the end of the day, isn't she considered a comedian? Yeah, but there have yeah. to be standards, you know. I, I look, I, I'm very, I'm very open to the idea that people should get a second chance. But this, you also have to enforce some standards. And her, her joke was. Well, I understand it was. A it, joke. it was, you know what I mean. It was just well, so. Well, there are, there's a place where it's so over the line, right? There's a difference between telling your boss like I thought your presentation was bad and telling your your boss to go blank himself. Like one of them is going to get you fired. You know what I mean? Exactly, but you watch all the stand-up comedians that are African-Americans out there that have shows like ABC, NBC, and all those programs. They can stand up there and make harsh comments about whites, and nothing is ever said. That's, that's a double, that's an issue that I'm talking about. They're allowed to still go on their programs, say whatever they want to say, attack whoever they want to attack, but nothing's ever said about that. Well, look, you know, Denver. This is where you, this is where you get into you have a, you have a le- you know a legacy of slavery in this country, which is very very real and still very it's still a very painful part of our history. People yep. would also describe how you know the the African American community in this country is still uh, still oppressed. There's racism is still real. I mean, these are things that you'll hear all the time. But just because I think some people exploit those kinds of dynamics for their own political gain doesn't mean they're not real dynamics. And and I think yes, that there, I, I think it's understandable that the African American community, and in fact, in fact, I'd say it's to be expected. The African uh, African American community is going to be more sensitive uh, on racial jokes uh, directed at, at at them than say the white uh, or or just non African American community in this country would. So I, I I don't think these are I don't think this is a straightforward comparison. Is what I'm trying to say. Um, and I th- and, and, and if you gave me, you know, if you gave me something where, you know, we could look at the specifics of one comment that one comedian made, I could say, OK, well, we look at but we're speaking in, in kind of broad generalities. Yeah. But my, but Denver, I, I do appreciate you calling in. I want to get to Mike in Pennsylvania because we're going to move on from this topic afterwards. Mike, thanks for calling. Oh, Mike dropped. OK, fair enough. Um, yeah, you know, I, I uh, you know, I, I just. You know, I know people are going to say that there's one comment and, uh, you know, can't she apologize? And it it brings the she's in the media business. She's had quite a career up to this point, but she's a bad representation for ABC's brand at this point. And and they're going to it's a it is a business decision, too. People are saying it's a it's an it's what's right decision. Which I think is is fair, but it's also a business decision. There are places that are just going to be too. Um, it, it's too. Un, there are comments that are unfor, that are too unforgivable, uh, unforgivable, unforgivable. Professionally speaking, um, you know, personally, you can always ask for forgiveness through, from uh, your community and and from God, and you know, move on as a person. But professionally, there are things that are, that go too far. That's all I got on that. I don't really have much more to add to it other than other than that. Although I did uh, really uh, want to uh, get into this immigration situation on the border, which I think is very, um, very interesting, largely because the way the media initially thought it was a huge, huge story, specifically so they could bash Trump. And then the reality was more complicated than what they had initially expected, and then things changed. We'll get to that and, and, uh, and also the latest on Spygate. That's all coming up. He's 
who's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. So we had a holiday weekend, obviously, and I wanted to you know, take some time, and I did. And I was away with, uh, with Miss Molly and her family and her dog, Harold, or as I have taken to calling him, Harold, because he's so cute. Uh, he is a boxer pit bull mix, and he's a very he's a very robust fellow. He likes to uh, he likes to jump up on the on the couch or on the chair and snuggle with you and forgets that he's you know about 70, 70 pounds of uh, of muscle and teeth. But he's very cute, very cute fellow. So I, I took some time away this weekend, and it was nice. Although it was a lot of rain where where I was, I think it was nice. Another Chicago, it looked like people were. We're walking around in bathing suits and getting a tan, and the whole East Coast was just like a monsoon practically out there. So I spent a lot of time indoors. Read, read, uh, finished off a couple of books, which maybe this Friday I'll talk to you about some of the interesting stuff from them, some some good reads to share with all of you. But I, this came up on my radar, this story about how Trump, is the administration that he leads, they're such monsters when it comes to illegal immigrants. I mean, they're they're so dehumanizing that they have this policy of separating parents and children. Just you, you can see the footage in your mind of parents just grasping their child's hand as they're pulled apart, and who knows when they'll see each other again. It's so traumatic for the kids. And they're put in cages, and they're put in... Uh, Buses with restraints specifically for the children. I mean, it was truly scary stuff I was seeing over the weekend. Problem is, it's all basically lies. I mean, when I say basically, I'll, I'll give the explanations of you know the specifics in a moment. But the problem is that what we saw over the weekend is that when a few journalists, and this is a recurring theme, when they see an opportunity to be anti-Trump, they take it. They don't verify facts. They don't look into the backstory. They don't want to hear from both sides or even be clear on one side. They just know if it's bad for Trump, it's good for me. I'm going to go for it. And this has led to all these embarrassing retractions in the past or these these appended corrections to news stories where it's like a, a chapter of a book they put at the bottom. Well, we got this wrong and this wrong and this wrong and that wrong and that wrong. But, you know. We don't want to retract the story. That's an anti-Trump story because then it's going to be a little too obvious that we got a problem. We got an anti-Trump compulsion. It really is a compulsion. It's like the people that hate Trump in the media and more broadly, I think, across the country, just can't control it anymore. It, it, you know, it's like it, it bubbles up from inside them. Oh, Trump! I hate Trump! I can't stop! You know. They have an anti-Trump addiction. And that's what was pushing a lot of this story at the border. So let me tell you what really happened. All right. This is, you can imagine, and there were all these initial tweets, and you had uh, uh, one of the Obama Obama bros, like one of the frat bros from the Obama administration. Um, they do a, I don't know, Favreau. There you go. Uh, he, he was one that, that kind of fell for this whole situation. Uh, that was saying, oh, look at this photo of these children in cages. That was that was what initially got it going. A New York Times, not just a New York Times employee, the editor-in-chief of New York Times magazine. So, uh, look, that's a, 
in the left wing media world, that's a big that's a big job, right? That's a big name position. He shared these uh, photos of children sleeping in cages and used that to go after the Trump administration. You know, he he took this as an opportunity to show his uh, his distaste for Trump. And look, you see these photos and, and they're about children in cages at the border, you know, in holding cells, essentially. And it doesn't it's not it's a photo that has emotional impact. The problem, though, with blaming Trump for these photos. Was that they were taken in 2014. Now, I bet everyone listening to this. As much faith as you have in Trump would probably be willing to agree with me that it is unlikely that you could blame national immigration policy in the year 2014 on Donald Trump. And in fact, I know, here it comes. Here it comes. It's going to be tough. Get ready for a little bit, a little bit. Uh, In fact, there's only really one person, if you're going to look at this as an extension of an administration, who you could blame for what happened in 2014. And that person would be Barack Obama. Oh, gosh, what do they do now? New York Times is sharing a photo from the Obama administration era of children in cages at the border, separated from their parents, saying how terrible it is. And then they find out that based on the very obvious timeline, it can't be blamed on Trump. And a remarkable thing happens. I bet you're going to guess what this is. I'm telling you, I'm going to tell you, but you already know. The interest level that the media had in that story magically plummeted. Like all of it, it it went from all over the place, sharing, sharing, retweeting, commenting. Oh my gosh, look at Trump. He's locking up, he's locking up undocumented immigrants in these cells. Illegal alien children, same idea. He's locking them up in these cells. Oh, it was actually Obama's administration. Oh, 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 well, I, I guess I uh, need to correct this. Uh, it wasn't uh, under Trump's tenure, and let's just move on. But wait, I thought I thought the treatment of these children was so terrible, and that's what was, oh. Oh, it was really only a story to them as long as it was useful against Trump. Or it was only an important story as long as it was useful against Trump. Isn't that interesting? Don't we note that with some degree of, uh, well, disdain for the ethics of the media, which I think we all should have right now. I think that's definitely something to keep in mind here. Uh, Let me also tell you, though, that it gets worse. I mean, there's more. I shouldn't even say it gets worse, but there's more. Oh, but Hadass Gold, who's a new reporter over at CNN, uh, she had been at Politico beforehand. She also... Shared that, you know, it was all about migrant children in cages and it was so, uh, you know, so terrible. And and then they kind of just moved on from it. Um, But there was another photo out there where they were sharing a, I mean, this one you had to see to believe it. They they shared a a bus, uh, a photo of a bus that was an immigration detention facility owned bus or, 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 Immigration and Customs Enforcement owned bus. And 
it was shared as, quote, a prison bus for babies. Okay. You can imagine, and this, this was, again, from a, a, a blue check verified, you know, journalist, okay, um, from ABC in Houston, a prison bus for babies. Now, I, I saw this, and I initially thought to myself, come on, like, who, who really, because you look at it, and it, you've got these chairs that have restraints in them, right? I mean, not. Not like uh, a straitjacket, but, you know, they, they're car seats. Now, if you say that a car seat for a baby is for its, or, or you know, a young child, is for its uh, safety, you're a good person. If you say that it is a scary-looking restraint as part of a prison program, people are going to go, oh, gosh, that seems really severe. That's really scary. We can't have that. And you know what... Uh, what it turns out is true about about those. Uh, I mean, I wish I could show you. Uh, I wish I could show you this. Um, but this is from a story that was published on April 29th, twenty ninth, twenty sixteen. That's where they got this photo. They were sharing I mean, again about Trump's monstrous border policy, separating parents from children. He's a monster. He's so scary. But the photos are from April 29th, 2016. Now, everybody, who wants to join me in this one? Was Barack, was Barack Obama president then or was Donald Trump president then? Oh, and by the way, this got shared. I mean, this was all over the media. Don't th- I'm not picking on some little thing here that no one paid attention to. This was everywhere over the weekend. I was trying to stay off Twitter. I did not do a good enough job. I'm really going to try to enforce Twitter-free Saturday for myself going forward. And I'm going to build up to Twitter free weekends. And you and I, we get to hang out via the show Monday through Friday. I can check the Facebook inbox for Team Box. You can write to me. But, you know, I I do think that that we, you know, especially those of us who do commentary for a living need to just and all of you really social media, social media free at least one day of the weekend, at least one day. We got to get there. But it's another conversation. So this story circulated on April 29, 2016, and the prison bus for babies that was being shared, you know what it was really for? Educational field trips. Do you know where this prison bus for young children w- went? It's a prison bus. Oh, it's a, it's a prison bus. They're taking babies and putting them in prisons, in a, in a little baby seat prison. It's scary. You know, the Illuminati and the Bilderbergs are taking all these kids, putting them in prison. No. This, quote, prison bus took these children in the custody of HHS, by the way. Immigration and Customs Enforcement turns over minors in the immigration system to HHS. You know where they were taken? Terrifying places. I mean, this is real, uh, you know, fascist-level stuff we're talking about here. They went to see a movie at a local theater. Uh, they went for an excursion to a local park to uh, play, uh, kick around the ball, uh, you know, play a little wiffle ball. They went to the San Antonio Zoo to see cool animals. When you're a kid, man, I mean, there are a few things that I remember. I went to Bronx Zoo Camp. That's right. I went to a camp in a zoo for like two weeks. All we did was just walk around, learn about the animals, and they would let let us play with some of the animals. Um, mostly like very large, if I very large insects, which I was not particularly like. They brought over a beetle that I still have nightmares about. But anyway. 
Yeah, the zoo is a nice place to go. It's not a prison program. The seats that they were reporting on that were pre-Donald Trump anyway for Immigration and Customs Enforcement were child safety seats because they don't want kids when the bus stops short to smack their faces either into the chair in front of them or, you know, into the windshield or anything else. They want them safe. That's it. But it was this was a remarkable series of errors that were magnified and shared and magnified and shared and the echo chamber effect and no one stopped to do the bare essentials of journalism no one stopped to think wouldn't we maybe know if the trump administration had instituted a new program that had prison buses for babies which is such a crazy concept when you really think about it. it's amazing that anybody Shared, you know, thousands of times all over the place. But all reason, all mental faculties, all ability to be honest, to be rational, to the media loses all of it if it is against this administration. It, it actually has gotten to a point for me where it makes me uncomfortable because what I'm seeing, and I do not say this to overstate it, I'm not trying to be a provocateur here or something. What I'm seeing when people talk about Trump derangement syndrome, what I see from some of these people in the media does seem to be pathological. It does seem to be a mass hysteria along the lines of a, a mental illness, a, a collective mental illness that is influencing the way that people are approaching their jobs and their perception of reality because of this administration. There are no prison buses for babies and the detention centers for children that we've seen these photos of existed during the Obama era. So we've got a lot of talking to do about who's really rough on immigrants and who's not. And we'll have more also on parents and children being separated and, and whether that's true and how it's true in just a moment. I'm going to talk more about the truth uh, of the Obama, I mean, sorry, the Trump administration, pardon me, look what I just did, uh, getting all mixed up here with the uh, children being separated from parents at the border. I want to get into that in in some detail, and uh, I went a little long in the last segment, so that means that i got to hold that for the next hour. I really want to work through that with you. I think it's important. You're going to see a lot more about this, because on the issue of immigration, the left, the Democrats... Going into the midterms, absolutely have to emotionalize the issue. If people know what's really going on and what had been going on at the border, they will be much more, meaning the electorate will be much more with Trump, at least in my estimation. Uh, if it just turns into who who cares about kids more, who's nicer when it comes to immigrants, who's nicer about these things, then I think you're very likely to have not a Democrat overall advantage necessarily, but their fortunes will be better on immigration if that's the case. But I want to take a moment to just stop and tell you about a, a happy story from across the pond here. You had this, they're calling him Spider-Man, 22-year-old Mamadou Gassama, who, climbed, if you haven't seen the video, by the way, I mean, this guy is agile. It was, it was impressive. 
Uh, he climbed up four floors of an apartment building to save a dangling child. I mean, by the way, this is a thing that I feel like a lot of people dream that like one day maybe, you know, when you're thinking about, oh, it'd be great to be a hero. You think, you know, saving a dangling child. I mean, the, the, the child was literally holding on for dear life on the edge of a building four floors up. Very likely could have been killed if, if uh, the child had lost uh, lost his grip. And Gassama just, I mean, he, he got up there. It was It was pretty... It was pretty remarkable. I mean, the guy's in, you know, he's very good shape, and he got, he climbed up the four floors. Uh, but he's now been made a, or he's about to be made by Emmanuel Macron. May we be sûr, Macron. I just, anytime I can do that with Macron's name, I like to get a little French. Uh, Going to make him a citizen. And, you know, I, I, any of these stories, and it's, it's true of those who serve in the, in the military here, and I think it should be true of anyone abroad, any of these stories where someone gets their citizenship because of an act, a, act of uh, bravery, patriotism, or service, or all of the above, I, I think it's just a good message to send about, you know, citizenship is a valuable thing. It should people should be able to earn it. It it should be something that is earned, not that's just distributed out as as a political favor. And this guy in Fr- in France, Mamadou Gassama, uh, they're calling him Spider Man or perhaps Le Spider Man. Um, congrats to him. It was really cool, and uh, he saved someone's life. I've got a cup of it in my hand right now. Black Rifle Coffee. I drink coffee every day it's just something that i need to help get me going i also think coffee is delicious one of my favorite flavors out there but there are so many different options for where you get your coffee put all that out of your mind if you want to support veterans if you want to support a great american small business that's all about patriotism and liberty and drink some phenomenal coffee in the process black rifle coffee is for you i'm a subscriber i get it delivered in a box every month of k-cup rounds you should check it out for yourself. They've got all different kinds of flavors and blends. They've even got decaf now. Go to blackriflecoffee.com slash buck. Very important. Use that coupon code buck15. That's buck15. We'll get you 15% off at checkout. Blackriflecoffee.com slash buck. Coupon code buck15. Join the coffee or die revolution. Buck Sexton. Permission. Decoding the news and disseminating information with actionable intelligence. Make make no mistake. America. You're a great American. Again. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. So. If you cross the border unlawfully, even a first offense, then we're going to prosecute you. Those cases are up about double uh, last year, and they, we're going to go higher this year. Uh, you, it's a, uh, an offense to enter the country unlawfully. If you smuggle an illegal alien across the border, then we'll prosecute you for smuggling. If you're smuggling a child, then we're going to prosecute you. And that child will be separated from you, probably, as required by law. Uh, If you don't want your child to be separated, then don't bring him across the border illegally. It's not our fault. There you had Attorney General Jeff Sessions just uh, last couple of weeks there talking about how the Trump administration is approaching the issue of illegal immigration when it involves 
uh, children when it involves minors. Now, this is a complicated issue with a lot of different things going on. I'm going to break it down for you so you really understand, because I spent time over the weekend re- researching this, make sure I'm up to speed, and I like to bring you the facts and the truth. If you want you know, nonsense and hyperbole, there's plenty of that on social media. And with that in mind, you may have seen some, again, journalists, people with followings, people that are entrusted, you know, their careers are all about bringing information to the public. They started running around with this meme or this storyline that the Trump administration has lost, has lost uh, almost 1,500 immigrant, immigrant children. It, it did not lose them, folks. But this is what people are saying, they lost them. Oh, they're just lost. We don't know where they are. We can't find them. Trump is, it's like Trump took 1,500 immigrant kids to the movies personally, and he left them there, and no one knows where they are now, right? It's like, oh, they're lost. That's not what happened. But that was, that was what people were saying. You know, did the administration lose all these kids? How did they lose them? Where are they? We have to find Where are they? We have to find them. No, 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 no. This is where we have to step back for a moment and look at what's really going on here, because this matters. You're going to have a major debate over immigration leading into the midterms, that's for sure. Whether you know whether Republicans are serious about this or not this time around, I, I don't know. Your, your guess is as good as mine. You know, Republicans are not uh, not to be trusted on the issue of immigration. I just I just gotta say it. You don't know what you're getting with the GOP on immigration enforcement. They want to call it reform. You know, it's just a matter of time before you get Marco Rubio out there again, uh, running around talking about the Gang of Eight bill that died a while ago. They'll try to bring it back. Right? Different Gang of Eight than the usual here in D.C. Uh, so that's all going to happen. So, But here's, here's what's happened at the border with regard to these children and the separation of the children and all this other stuff. Okay, first of all, the Trump administration has not actually changed the rules. And one thing you've always got to remember is that Republicans or conservatives, more specifically, get in trouble for literally saying, well, the law that says we have to do this, we're, we're going to do what that law says. Democrats on immigration take a position of a la carte lawlessness. It's just the way they approach it, the way they do it. And so you have to remember that. Now we get into what's going on here. The rules are the same. You separate adults from children under certain circumstances at the border. Right? If, if an adult and a child show up to the border, for example, as they have from Central America and claim, uh, uh, you know, and, and claim asylum. Well, hold off on the asylum status for now. We'll get, I'll get into that in a moment. See, this is, I'm honest with you. There's a bunch of different ways this plays out. It's complicated. Of course, the media is just Trump. We hate Trump. Trump's separating children from parents. That's all they can think about. What's really happening? What are the policies? What are the implications? Legally, how does this work out? They don't care. If there's an anti-Trump story, they're for it. If there's a pro-Trump story, they don't know anything about it. So if you show up at the border and you falsely claim, you, you pretend to be the parent of a child there, which is going on with uh, trafficking and trafficking of children 
which you know can involve horrific crimes against children, right? But if, if, if an adult shows up pretending to be a parent, then yeah, they're going to separate them, all right? Because of all the implications there, what could be going on, what is this, what's happening. If you're smuggling children, if you're an adult who is smuggling children, they will separate you. If they in any way believe or estimate, remember, we're talking about children under 18 here, folks, right? So we could have teenagers involved. Uh, if there's a threat to the child, they'll separate them. That's, these, these, these are the obvious cases, right? I mean, clearly, if, if a coyote is smuggling a 10-year-old across the border and you catch them together, you're not going to keep the coyote with a 10-year-old, right? And if the smuggler is, or, or just any adult is with a child at the border and you and law enforcement is able to or ICE uh, is able to figure out that there's some threat, that's all straightforward, obvious. Okay, but these are scenarios. We understand these scenarios. Put them out there. All right. Now, here's where it gets a little more complicated. What if the adult is put into the criminal justice process? And this is where everyone's saying, oh, my gosh, you know, well, you're separating adult, you're separating parents from their children. You know, you can just see, like, tiny hands grabbing the parent's finger and, like, mean law enforcement people in this country pulling them apart. You just see the imagery they're trying to conjure up here. Well, here's where, here's where this actually, what this actually turns into. If, in fact, uh, someone shows up at the border and tries to cross illegally into the country with a child, they will be criminally processed. If they are a first-time offender, it's a misdemeanor. You can get up to six months, but as anybody who knows anything about the criminal justice system knows, first-time offenders for nonviolent crimes don't get the maximum. In fact, they generally don't even get the minimum. I mean, they just usually get a slap on the wrist, and I don't do this again. So for people who are first-time trying to cross the border and are caught illegally, they can temporarily be separated from their child. The child goes in the custody of Health and Human Services. The child is fed and clothed and cared for. And by the way, all courtesy of the taxpayer, all courtesy of you. Uh, and, and the process, if the parent wants to just say, okay, you know what? I want to go back. To, I'll, I'll turn around and go back to my home country is basically immediate. It's very, very quick. I and mean, it's like same day proceedings. And if the, if the person says, okay, we'll turn back. I want to be with my kid. Everyone gets reunited the same day. So yeah, I mean, they're separated, but they may be separated for a few hours. I would note that if you are criminally processed, and this is what this is what the media, you know, they, they don't like to think hard about these things. If any of you listening were arrested, let's say, you know, you you were in a traffic stop situation, you very in very unwise fashion decided to get physical with the officer, and they arrest you, and you've got like, you know, little little junior in the in the back seat who's ten years old. They don't say, Okay, junior, we're taking your dad downtown. Take the wheel, you know, you don't have a license, but see how it goes, right? No. They're gonna, you know, and, and if they're gonna take another parent. I know to come to cause, but if there's no one else who can come take care of the child, if there's no, if they can't get anyone, if there's no other family member, no other person, then they are gonna have to temporarily take custody of the child while the parent is processed. And there's no other way. What are you gonna, you're gonna leave this, you know, eight year old or ten year old or whatever just by the side of the road? So you know, this is not completely unique to the circumstances of crossing at the border. So if you're willing to go back, if you're willing to be turned back right away, and remember, the administration now is enforcing the law about illegal crossing. So if you try to cross illegally and they get you, they're going to put you in the criminal system. If you are a repeat offender, 
you can be charged with a felony, meaning if this is not the first time you've tried to illegally cross, you can be charged with a felony. But if you're charged with any felony, guess what? You're going to be separated. If you go to prison, you're going to be separated from your kid. Right? If you, if you don't pay your taxes, I love to get to that one because we all know, does it matter if you pay your taxes? No. Just like one person crossing the border illegally, does it really matter to the country? No. But if everybody does it, it matters a whole lot. If enough people do it, it matters a whole lot. And it is never a defense that the government will accept about not paying your taxes to say, I mean, come on, you really need like my, my 15 grand this year? Is that really going to make a difference to you guys, Uncle Sam? Even though the answer is no, it makes zero difference. None. It is, it is literally completely irrelevant. But they are strict on the black letter, straightforward law of tax uh, evasion. Whereas on immigration, they'll say, oh, there's human rights and all this other stuff that they pretend the law isn't the law anymore. But if you don't pay your taxes and you go to prison, somebody else, hopefully it's a family member, somebody else takes care of the kid. The state will take custody of the kid if nobody else will. So this is not, you know, they've created this circumstance where like Trump and the administration, they're these monsters. It's just not true. It's just not true. It gets a little bit more complicated because of the Flores Consent Decree, which says that unaccompanied children can be held only for 20 days. And then there's a ruling by the Ninth Circuit that says the 20-day limit um, extends to children who come as part of a family unit. So there's, there's some variations, but that's from 1997. It's been around for a long time. And that comes in for, for when somebody's claiming asylum. If you claim asylum, that process can take a little bit longer, and so there can be a separation longer than a day or even a few days between the adult and the children if you are claiming asylum. So that's where this starts to... But it's not new. It's uh, it's not Trump-specific. And, you know, I also think that claiming asylum... You know, it should be because you're in fear of your life. It shouldn't just be, hey, this is an easy way to get me and my family to the United States, which is a better economic situation than what I'm coming from in my home country. So because of the abuse, in my opinion, of asylum claims that surged under Obama and have continued under the Trump administration, you have this one area where there's, yes, if you show up at the border, you're claiming asylum, you might be separated from your children while that processing is going on, and that can last for up to up to 20 days. Again, not months not years not but there can be a a separation that occurs there so that's where all this comes together there is oh there's nothing that's specific about trump with this and congress should fix this if they want to fix this right there's something that they they can take action here they don't like to take action because then they're on the record actually doing something and they'd rather just fundraise and be a bunch of clowns in the congress okay on the lost children thing because this also then turned into, oh my gosh, Trump Trump is separating families and then they're losing the children. Not what's happening. Okay, What is happening is you've had about 1,500 immigrant, immigrant kids who are out and are put with adult sponsors. This all, often happens, by the way. A lot of kids, when they get to the border, they actually get passed along to their adult sponsors, the unaccompanied minors, That's what, or, or even accompanied minors. That's what ends up happening. They get given to an adult sponsor. It's usually a family member. Uh, so all that's happened here is that HHS has made follow-up calls. 
has made follow-up calls to uh, these immigrant children. And there are about, uh, and this happened last year, there are about 1,475 that were placed with sponsors in the United States. And uh, what they found out is that they've had a, a percentage of them that did not respond. Right. So this is what the New York Times writes in this. Losing track of children who arrive at the border alone is not a new phenomenon. A 2016 Inspector General report showed the federal government was able to reach only 84% of children it had placed, leaving 4,159 accounted for. All that means, folks, and everyone's freaking out about this. Oh, Trump, they're losing the kids. Where are the kids? Are they hiding somewhere? What's When, they, when HHS, when government bureaucrats called the sponsor families, not all of them responded. That's all. This isn't like missing children, like put up a, a photo of them on the back of a milk cart. And no one's seen them in years. This isn't that kind of like really serious stuff. This is just they didn't respond to the phone call. Uh, maybe because they weren't there, maybe because they're busy, maybe because they've moved. So. They reached 84 percent of the children they had placed. 16 percent. They didn't respond. That's not missing kids. That's just missing phone calls. But what's our what's our common theme, folks? Oh, that's right. It, if it's anti-Trump, run with the story. Figure out the details later. If it makes the Trump administration look bad, run with the story. Figure out the details later. If you have to run a correction, do it in the dead of night when no one's paying attention. That is what they do. And now I think we finally dug in deep on what's going on at the border when it comes to adults and children and separation and the administration. Whew. That was that was some work we just did there, team. We'll be right back. When we went up to Trump Tower to brief uh, the then-president-elect and his team on uh, the intelligence community assessment, and uh, right away, uh, and I think the president's been very consistent uh, ever since, that uh, anything that casts doubt on the legitimacy of his election uh, he has problems with, and so that was the, you know, the bad news, the the truth to power we were uh, serving up to him, and that's that's uh, that's been an issue where, uh, you know, we have alternative facts or relative truth, you know, this kind of thing, and that is anathema to anyone that's in the the information business. For me, uh, if you're going to use the word term spy, which I never have liked, but anyway, let's assume it's a valid term. To me, that suggests using t- intelligence tradecraft, employing a an operative who has been formally trained in uh, clandestine collection, uh, someone who's masking their identity, or someone who is uh, recruiting. And this informant was none of that. So that, to me, the informant is the most benign form of uh, intelligence collection that you can do. Look at the gymnastics the former DNI is going through on that one, folks. Uh, benign intelligence collection. Do we think there's such a thing as benign intelligence collection when the most powerful intelligence agencies in the world are looking into you, looking at your stuff? Is it ever benign? What nonsense. Now, one thing he said that I will admit is, is true. I've been saying it for a long time. Everyone pretends there's no such thing as spying anymore. Spying is what bad people do. That is wrong. The intelligence community spies. The CIA spies. 
These are spying organizations, right? We can say, we can call it intelligence collection, but that's just another way of saying spying. It's the same thing. We, we, we can get into the semantics all day long, right? You even had, I think, Brennan, who was the CIA director, saying, well, we don't steal secrets. He said that publicly. Uh, yeah, dude, actually, you do. This, when you're intercepting phone calls from around the world or looking at people's emails or whatever, that's stealing information. You're not like, hey, can I hear your phone call? Like, this is just craziness. But notice how he gets into this semantics game of, yeah, you know, it's an informant, not a spy. Uh, so they're running inform- they were running an informant against the Trump campaign. Can I just be clear on, was there an informant or was there not an informant? Because you have people saying, Marco Rubio over the weekend says there was no spying. So is this now the talking point they'll use? Because they'll, first they'll define away spying. Like there's really no such thing. Like we never spy. This country doesn't spy. Law enforcement doesn't spy. Intelligence community doesn't spy. So once they define that away, well, of course there's no spying, right? Because they've changed the definition. But running an informant at somebody to get information to possibly use for a prosecution? Yeah. That's a form of spying. And the former director of national intelligence should know that. I think he does know that, which means that what he's doing right now is just being dishonest. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. You're suggesting he's running a pretty fair investigation right now, correct? I don't think it's fair. I I think it's designed to to punish the president, to ruin the president, to ruin his family, to ruin his businesses, to ruin his friends. I don't think this thing is fair at all. I sat through it. What would be the reason not to tell people with top security clearances the reason? It would quiet down many people who have questions like you and like the president. Yeah, well, the the obvious reason is that they didn't have an adequate basis to do it. And that's fortified. That suspicion is fortified by the fact that every time they tell us they can't tell us something, they claim it's because of national security. And then when the pressure gets ratcheted up and that stuff gets unredacted, we find out it's got nothing to do with national security. It's that they're embarrassed by what uh, what they've done. So two two points there that came from two different sources. First, uh, I'll take them in. Well, actually, I'll take them in order. You had uh, Michael Caputo, who's and we need to keep reminding each other of this. We need to keep this front of mind. The Mueller probe is. If nothing else, catharsis for angry Democrats who cannot accept that Donald Trump beat Hillary Clinton and became president. And so as part of their goal for the probe is just that it exists, that it's painful, that it's expensive, and that it hurts people around Trump. And we cannot ignore that because that is one of the reasons they pushed for this and why they defend it. It's not because they want to get to the truth. It's because they want the process to be the punishment. Okay, then on to Andy McCarthy's point, our friend Andy McCarthy from National Review, who was talking on Fox there. We cannot ignore that time and again, the FBI plays this game where they say, oh, we can't tell you that. It's super secret. It's super sensitive. And then we find out more information. Turns out it wasn't super secret sensitive at all. It just is something they don't want to tell us. 
that is explicitly forbidden in the federal rules about what is classified and what is not. And they keep on doing it because there's no consequ- there are no consequences for overclassification. So one of the ways that government protects itself, that the bureaucracy, that the deep state covers its own butt, is to overclassify as much as it possibly can. And specifically to make things classified that no reasonable person could ever believe would be classified. Case in point, they redacted that Andrew McCabe spent $70,000 on a conference table for his, for his like senior executive FBI conference room or whatever. Now, I'm a fan of interior decorating insofar as I like a comfy couch and a big TV to watch. 70000 is a lot of money for a table anywhere, anytime. Do I think that the Russians, do I think the Chinese now have a national security advantage over us because we know that Andy McCabe clearly has a tendency to think highly of himself as when he was an acting FBI director, when he was number two at the FBI, and believes that you know he's earned that taxpayer-funded $70,000 table? Of course, the answer is No. Not a national security issue. It's an Andy McCabe is a self-important jerk issue, and they didn't want people to know. So when we see that on something that's relatively minor like that in the grand scheme of things, what are we to think of the other redacted information that's out there or withheld information? I keep going back to this. I hear all these stories. I see all these articles about how any day now we're going to see the really bad stuff, right? The, Mueller didn't want to initially share. His team didn't want to share with a federal judge the full extent, the full orders uh, authorization for the Mueller probe. They eventually shared it, but what could possibly be in there that is uh, of such high national security value that it could not be publicized? So far, the international men of mystery that we're supposed to believe are the justification for this entire year-long-plus mess are Carter Page and George Papadopoulos, neither of whom has been charged with espionage, conspiracy, or anything of the kind. Papadopoulos has been charged with being caught up in the Mueller probe and lying. But no, no international conspiracy, no espionage, no collusion with Russia, nothing. And I think that the unwillingness of the FBI to share this information is in large part not just about politics. Sure, it's about that. A lot of people in the FBI clearly did, you know, they, they wanted Hillary to win. They thought she'd win. They don't like Trump. I get it. But on, on top of that, they want to protect the bureaucracy. And this is a very powerful sentiment that you have in these large federal organizations they want they can justify a lot of stuff to themselves if it's protecting the institution then that becomes its own mission right when you show up i know when i was showing up at the cia day in and day out you know we mission first mission first we got to be all about the mission right protecting america giving policymakers the best information so they can make smart decisions all that stuff right all that good stuff rah rah that's why you join okay once you're there Once you're in the bureaucracy, once you are 
a part of the mega state, I won't say the deep state, but the mega state that is our federal bureaucracy, you start to see that protecting your specific tribe within that larger unit of the federal government becomes its own mission and one that can be corrosive over time, one that can make otherwise very very clear-thinking, reasonable, and ethical people start to act in ways that are dubious. You know, they'll, they want to protect the Bureau, protect the agency, protect the department, whatever it may be. And suppression of information to that end becomes very self-justifying, right? Oh, you know, the public doesn't really need to know this. We keep them safe. This is just going to be embarrassing and difficult for us. I think that's a big part of what's driving the foot dragging over the FBI, because even people that have nothing to do with the whole collusion, debacle, make-believe fiasco, right? Forget about the Comeys and the Yateses and the McCabes and the Strucks and all the rest of them for a second. Even other folks at the FBI, I worry, have been brought into this mindset of, well, look, obviously some shady stuff happened. They were trying to set Trump up. They were trying to have a pretext to use spying tools against him. But we, we, we're going to need the FBI tomorrow and the next year and the next decade. So to the extent we can, we got to protect it. To the extent we can protect the American people's perception of DOJ, we got to keep some information out of the poll. And, and that, I think that's happening a lot here. So it's a variation on, oh, we don't want them to know the truth because then they'll see the bad things we did. That's a big part. That's the, the, the page, I mean, the... Uh, uh, Yates and McCabe and all them. That, that's what they're doing. Comey, obviously. But there are others that are just like, well, you know, we need to protect our institution. If that means that we play a little fast and loose with the information and the truth for the American people, so be it. Problem with that is it's really not their call. And we really do need transparency and we do need the truth here. Uh, by the way, there's a, a, uh, a this is from NBC News, quote, CIA report says North Korea won't denuclearize, but might open a burger joint. I tell you some CIA has been wrong in the past and I used to work there. Let's look at this so-called report that NBC has and what's going on with North Korea. That's coming up. As we've always said, with moving the embassy from Jerusalem, having historic tax cuts, um, pulling out of Paris, this president keeps the promise of other presidents. Now, uh, this president, in that letter last week, I thought really got some kinetic energy going. Folks all of a sudden said, wow, this may actually not happen, and if we want it to happen, then we're going to start moving it. Ever since then, practically, North Korea, South Korea, and the United States have been uh, making very positive moves. But let's see what happens, as the president says, if he's satisfied that we'll go forward. His number one concern is not prosperity, not economic. Certainly, that's important to him. I'm not suggesting it's not. But clearly, this has always been about security. Why nuclear weapons? Why ballistic missiles? Why pointing them at the United States? All because he wants his regime to be secure and stay in power. He's a young man, and he's looking out many, many years down the road, and he wants this regime to stay in power. Will there be a summit on June 12th or not between the Trump administration, between the United States of America and North Korea? Answer is, we don't have an answer. We just simply do not know at this point. A lot of media attention on this. I was actually over... Uh, on Cavuto's show on Fox News earlier today on this specific issue, 
where you have Kim Yong Chol, who is the uh, vice chairman of the Central Committee of the North Korean Communist Party. He is also the former uh, head of their biggest intelligence organization, uh, the I think it's the National Reconnaissance Directorate. Uh, I forget uh, my my North Korean <laughs> my, my North Korean intel organizations are rusty. I don't remember exactly which one it is. I think that's right. Uh, but he's a guy who's now heading to uh, New York City. I'm sorry. The Reconnaissance General Bureau is what North Korea's intelligence agency is called. The American and European ones I'm very good on, and some of the Mideast ones, but there you have it. The Reconnaissance General Bureau. But Kim Jong-chol is heading to New York City. He's going to meet with Secretary of State Pompeo, and they're going to start talking about some stuff. Here's here's part of what I think is going to be up for discussion. Hey, North Korea, don't let China use you in ways that are against your own interests. Uh, This is a a very complicated negotiation over very straightforward things. North Korea can either uh, agree to dismantle its nuclear program and be integrated into the international community and have way more economic prosperity uh, than they do right, you know, just a better, forget about prosperity, a livable economic situation compared to what they have right now. Or they can stay on this path of instability and see if it actually leads to war. Right? That, that's a very quick distillation of what's at stake here, what's at play. I think that Pompeo and whoever else is going to talk to Kim Jong-chol, they're going to be saying, Look, don't, list, don't think that China has all of your best interests at heart on this one. Now, China's got all the leverage in the world with North Korea. I think 90% of North Korea's economy is based on trade and import and export with China. So without China, there really is no North Korea. It would cease to be. It would be in a state of economic and literal starvation. I think this is also why you've got the U.S. now saying, hey, you know what, China, maybe we will put $50 billion of of, uh, tariffs on the table. You know, maybe we will start charging a a 25% import tax on certain goods that come from China. And by the way, that could be the beginning of a whole lot more in terms of tariffs. Just a few days ago, the uh, administration was saying, the Trump administration was saying, you know what, we're going to ease off on China with all this stuff. We're going to, you know, we're going to try to give these negotiations a chance and let's see how things go with not just on the Chinese side with trade, but also with the North Koreans. And now you've got a bit of whiplash because Trump and his team come along. And they say, oh, hold, hold on a second. China doesn't want to be constructive and helpful here. We're going to have to bring back. Uh, we'll, we'll bring back those uh, tariffs. And then you'll have the specter of trade war once again, which I think is still overblown in a lot of people's minds. But I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm not saying there's there's no way we get to that. I'm just saying I don't think it's likely we get to that. But how would this uh, how would this go? You know, what would it look like for us to do a uh, a process to denuclearize the Korean Peninsula? You have uh, General Jack Keane. He's a Fox News analyst and so on. He gave a pretty good one, two, three on this today. So uh, just I'll let you hear it from him and I'll break it down a bit more. Play five. I think everyone now, China, North Korea and even South Korea, know that this president is not going to be played. 
after a lot of the shenanigans that's been going on the last the last couple of weeks. Here's what they would want by a plan. One, is there full accounting of all your nuclear weapons and ballistic missiles? Can we see that? Two, are you willing to open up that entire disarming and dismantling process so we have full verification of the entire process? And number three, Will we do this in a reasonable amount of time? Are you going to drag this out over many years, way beyond the president's term of office, so that it's more of a promise than it is a delivery okay, of denuclearization? All right. Well, you heard it from the general there. We'll see. But one thing you can definitely pick up from this is that it's going to be a long process. It's not going to be quick, no matter what happens here. No matter what the... Uh, early indicators are a lot of ways this thing could go go south or sideways and that's something we have to keep in mind as well uh what do i think is going to happen here I, uh, it is a coin flip right now it, that the summit even happens it's hard to imagine a world for me where north korea will give up its nukes because i do believe that the paranoia about outside invasion and the hyper-militarism of the regime. And remember, the regime is, is a, a dynasty of, of the Kims, right? Kim Il-sung, Kim Jong-il, Kim Jong-un. It's only been three guys, not that many. And by the way, this uh, latest visitor, um, Yong, uh, Kim Yong-chol, he is one of those officials within the Korean regime, North Korean regime that spans all three of the Kims before him. So he worked for the founder of North Korea, the son of the founder, and the son of the son of the founder. Uh, but we will have to see. I am, uh, I am withholding some judgment here because I know it's going to be very tough. I, I think that when you look at regimes like this one, any transfer of power isn't just an issue of betraying. They feel like it, betray, it would uh, betray the country's interest, North Korea's interest, but also everyone who's at the top of the power pyramid would lose power and might lose their lives. You know, uh, coups are dangerous and messy things, and once a government doesn't, once an, a government that has had an iron grip loosens it, there's always a fear that you know they don't get to just live out their days on the Champs-Élysées in a big fancy apartment, but they end up heading to the guillotine, if you know what I mean. I think that's a part of this whole North Korea situation as well. i got to keep that in mind. All right, Hour three's coming. We're going to talk about the Starbucks today, the Starbucks uh, racial bias training that happened. I'll give you some thoughts on that one. Uh, also, a letter from a loony English teacher. That's a response to a form letter from Trump. I mean, they're now making news stories out of people that are basically yelling into their closets or yelling out into, into the woods with no one around them and saying this is a news story. It's crazy. Uh, and then we'll get into some roll call, obviously. So much, much more coming. Stay with me. On any background investigation or screening service, you need people that you can trust. You want them to be here in the States. And you want to make sure that not only do they keep confidence with all of the information you give them, but they make sure that information is stored safely and securely. That's where Global Verification Network comes in. Global Verification is the only dual-certified, veteran-owned background investigation and vetting company, and they are risk mitigation experts that are headquartered right here in Chicago. It's a small business dedicated to delivering expert, high-quality screening services to the employment, tenant screening, and financial services sectors. Check it out for yourself. Go to mygvn.com. 
That's mygvn.com or call 877-695-1179, 877-695-1179. Global Verification Network, leave no stone unturned. We all have had a life experience, and that life experience has provided us with a level of understanding that may be different than the level of understanding you have. And it doesn't have to be about race. It could be about ethnic background, sexual orientation, your station in life. Mm-hmm. But it's all about pr- trying to provide a level of empathy and compassion, a new level of sensitivity. So has President Trump's rhetoric personally on race exacerbated racism in America? I, I would say on a personal level, it probably has given license to people to feel as if they can emulate and copy the kind of behavior and language that comes out of this administration. There you have uh, Howard Schultz, CEO of Starbucks. Uh, or is he chairman of Starbucks? Whatever, close enough. Big big wig over at Starbucks who is uh, you know, doing the whole virtue signaling routine now with this training uh, that, that happened today. Eight thousand locations across the country closed today for racial bias education it is expected to cost starbucks 12 million dollars in revenue and according to nbc here owners of small coffee shops from philadelphia to sacramento see both a an opportunity and a chance to emphasize their value to the community uh, so there you have it. You had this training that came after a couple of incidents of alleged racial bias. And I, I just wanted I just want to know. I mean, everybody, come on. Okay, I'm I'm sitting here and I'm thinking to myself, what could anyone learn in three hours of of training about about bias? What are they gonna teach? I, I really mean this. Think this one through. What are they going to teach baristas? You know, people who are earning a living, honorable, they show up, they provide a service, earning a living, giving people coffee and food and snacks and things, uh, selling them food and coffee and uh, snacks. But they're going to learn about racial bias in a few hours, and that's really going to change anything? I I can just tell you that I I would be curious to see what the actual statistics are, but Starbucks is a very... From my own personal experience of drinking coffee for a very long time, Starbucks is a very diverse workforce. You don't get the sense that this is a place that, first of all, it's a progressive company, right? The company culture is very progressive. It's you know, they, they were going to go out there and hire uh, refugees, you recall. So they like to wade in on politics and always from the perspective of the left. But racial bias education in an afternoon? You see, I'm always told by the social justice left that racism is a very, you know, a multifaceted and complicated issue. There's subconscious bias. There's, you know, more overt bias. There's systemic racism. There's historical racism. There's all these different things. And you'd say to me, well, Buck, maybe Starbucks wants to teach its employees about all those things as much as it can. I would just say, but doesn't it seem like Kind of a big show, you know, is, isn't it doesn't have the feeling of this is all for a show with one afternoon. They're going to shut down and do this. Why? 
And this comes after they had that whole policy, which I was early in skewering, and now many, many others decided that obviously it was going to be a disaster, where they're just going to let you come in, use the facility, not just the bathroom, just sit in Starbucks, don't have to buy anything, don't have to do anything. That's going to be their policy. And they said, well, you know, no no sleeping, no drug dealing, and and probably, like, no robbing old ladies or, you know, urinating on the on the cappuccino machine and, you know, none of that either, right? I mean, there, there are some things that we all understand. Okay, fine, Starbucks had to draw a line somewhere. But this just feels highly, to me, highly unserious, and, and I, I think you can't leave out of this that this is a branding exercise for Starbucks now, too. Now this company has decided, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a commercial aspect to virtue signaling, too. They've decided, well, yeah, we're going to shut down all these stores, um, and but we're going to have people like everybody in the media, including, you know, Buck Sexton, yours truly, going to talk about what's going on in our stores and talk about how we're going to have more of this unconscious or racial bias. Not unconscious necessarily, though. I'm sure they touched on that, too. You know, I had a fair amount of progressive bias training when I was a resident counselor in college. We had to do it. You know, we had a couple of weeks where they'd bring in these people, diversity educators and just all different manner of expert and and speaker from a left-wing perspective on race relations, gender relations, transgender relations and all that. Now, this was a while ago. I'm sure things have evolved quite a bit since then but much of it felt very uh, very hollow to me and i also always felt like it was the the things that they say in these racial bias training modules the ones that i've seen and by the way you you know i had this when i worked in the government you know there was this huge effort you had the uh what the uh i forget what they call it but the federal government has a whole diversity and inclusiveness initiatives and programs this is all over the place I've never sat in one of these classes or sat through one of these modules. And I didn't get a chance to do the Starbucks training today, although I would have been very curious. I had other stuff to do, but it would have been interesting to be a, a fly on the wall or be able to sign on and say, hey, I wonder what they're actually teaching people about in there. Uh, but I, I've never sat in one of these trainings and said to myself, you know what? Yeah, I never thought of it that way. It's a lot of, well, you know, okay. The, it, it's either obvious or honestly... The obvious stuff, you know, treat people like individuals. Don't be a racist. Don't be a jerk. Don't be insensitive or unnecessarily, uh, you know, aggressive or terse. With all this stuff that I just feel like normal people in this country are are aware of. The people who have bias, I always find, who, who really do have an issue with other races or other, uh, you know, other religions or whatever it may be. They hear this stuff, and they're just like, yeah, well, that's all. They they reject it all. So I, I just don't see it, it, it reaching anybody. And they did this when I was in college. They did this when I was in the government. You know, they have to have all this, un, you know, uh, I keep saying unconscious, because that's the one that really gets you, where it's like, well, you may not think in racist terms. You may not take racist action, but you may still be a racist. You think to yourself, hmm. By the way, uh, the with Schultz, the CEO of us, or whatever, chairman of Starbucks, saying that, you know, Trump has made racism worse. It's definitely to note, you know, I think people put way too much emphasis on what one president would do, good or bad, for racism. I mean, Obama, first black president, 
very historically momentous for you know for that and, and a whole bunch of reasons didn't end racism and in fact there were a lot of really ugly racial incidents that occurred under the eight years of Obama's presidency including the whole uh anti-police movements that were burning down neighborhoods and so you know let's not pretend like the president is the driver of this one way or the other uh, so that is, that's how I feel about that but anyway we got a lot more teams stay with me So we had an all-hands meeting at my new venture down here in Washington, D.C. We got a big staff of folks, but as I looked around the room today, you know what I saw? A few folks that we got specifically from ZipRecruiter. That's right. When I was out there trying to find the very best, and I didn't want to spend a lot of time and energy, in fact, waste time and energy, sifting through all different kinds of resumes, I went to ZipRecruiter.com. I'm a user, and I can tell you it has been phenomenal in terms of the quality of candidates, the speed and efficiency that it gets me those candidates. Couldn't be any easier. See for yourself. Start an account. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. You can try it for free. I tried it, and I can't say enough good things about it. And now I have colleagues that are with me here in the office every day that we got using ZipRecruiter. Try it out and see for yourself. ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. Have you ever heard of a reparations happy hour? Well, I guess you have now. But it's a real thing. Something that just happened uh, last week, in fact, in Portland, Oregon. The reparations happy hour, as reported here by the New York Times, invited black, brown, and indigenous people to a bar and handed them $10 bills as they arrived, a small but symbolic gift mostly funded by white people who were asked not to attend. Okay. More specifics on this in a second, but this is a real thing, folks. This is something that happened and being covered in a national newspaper. Indigenous people. What is that supposed to mean? Does indigenous people include, you know, if, if we're talking about the indigenous people in the United Kingdom, do we refer to them uh, white people in the UK? Is that what? What are we talking about here? I mean, what indigenous me? No, I really mean this. The, the, the terminology that they will use is always very specific, very important to them. Indigenous in this country. Uh, okay, so no, we've now gone beyond Native American, which is also a problematic term because the natives originally had nothing to do with the whole concept of America and Amerigo Vespucci and the European uh, colonial movement, right? So to call them Native Americans isn't... But now we're just saying indigenous people, but are only non-white people able to fall under the term indigenous people? I I don't know if anyone has an answer for that. I guess if we're talking about, like, Stockholm, then the indigenous people stretching back as far as we know would be white. But I, just, I think it's interesting that they're, they're, this is an evolution of the term. I'm seeing it more and more. Okay, anyway, I don't want to get too hung up on the whole indigenous people thing, but it's noteworthy. But see, we get this reparations happy hour. You have people showing up. They're given $10. And white people are asked not to attend, but are asked to give money for the happy hour. So this is a racially and intentionally racially segregated uh activist function, I'm trying to think of even how to describe this, that's to raise awareness about financial compensation for black people. 
But now, see, here's what I'm... And by the way, this is... I'm reading to you from what they say here. This is from the Times. Uh, they hope the event, in addition to building community, would call attention to reparations, the concept that black people should be financially compensated for the generations of trauma that preceded them. Uh, by the way, 81% of... Uh, well, 68% of Americans oppose reparations as of 2016 polling, and uh, 81% of white people oppose it. 58% of black people in the poll support it. But here's, before I even get into reparations as a topic, notice how they have this, they call it, this is the term, reparations happy hour. White people not allowed or not asked not to attend. This is very similar, folks, to the, the day of absence that happened at Evergreen State College that got so much attention when white students were told, just stay off campus, you're not welcome here on this day. Some people thought that was strange. You could even say it was not particularly inclusive or uh, tolerant. <laughs> and that, that, that got a lot of national attention. By the way, I think they've continued to, or at least the, the Evergreen School, Evergreen administrators wanted to keep doing that. But the reparations happy hour is, a, is, is more specific to a policy, which is the policy of reparations, that, that there should be financial compensation for black people today in this country because of the legacy uh, of oppression and, and tyranny under slavery. Now, before I dive too deeply into that idea, I would also note that Brown and, this is a quote from the piece, Brown and indigenous people were invited to the reparations happy hour. So do they get reparations too? Do Native Americans or as they say, indigenous people, do they get reparations? When they say brown, I think activists, well, I don't know, actually. The left, I think, defines brown as not black and not white. And I, I, but I, I believe brown includes South Asian, for example, but it also includes Latino. Uh, it, it's a very, I mean, brown is a, and you could say this about, I guess, any skin color that we designate, but it's a very imprecise term or at least i'm not clear on where brown stops and starts what the outer boundaries of quote brown people uh would be but would latinos be a part of a reparations movement if they're not a part of reparations and they certainly there's no legacy of slavery with latinos in this country why are they at this event you see it feels very uh, it's obviously meant to not just raise awareness, but to be provocative, I think, but to to get attention from places like the New York Times, from me on the other side of the political aisle here on this show. But these ideas that the left runs around with, they're not particularly well thought out. In fact, in many cases, it feels like they have not been thought out at all. And when we're looking at reparations that and reparations events like this that include non-black americans in them i have i just have questions like well who gets reparations and who doesn't and then for the specifics of this uh, specifics of, of the policy well what would be sufficient reparations who's going to pay for it by the way where will the money come from and do you get reparations what if you're an african migrant to this country immigrant to this country uh in the last five years do, do you No, you don't qualify for reparations so is it a lineage issue? How long have you had to be? None of these, none of these actual implementation 
concerns are, are ever addressed by the community who talks about this on the left, at least from what I've seen. I mean, maybe there's some plans out there that are more specific that I'm not aware of. But it feels like it's unserious as a policy matter to me. It just feels more like it is it is used as a wedge uh, on the left, as a means of uh, antagonizing political adversaries, as a means of getting attention, and of separating and dividing people. And that's what this talk about reparations seems to turn into every time it comes up. Uh, the left will discuss it. There'll be some virtue signaling. You'll have the, you know, the Chris Hayes and the Ezra Kleins of the world. You know, they'll say, well, you know, we should take this very seriously. Or, or maybe they're in favor of it. I don't even know. Maybe I, but they'll certainly talk about it. Those are MSNBC guys for those. One of them's at Vox now, but same. it's like the same thing. Uh, ta Coates is the among the most celebrated uh, black American authors on the left today. He's very much... Uh, in, well, has, has at least made open cases for reparations in the past. So it gets talked, but it never goes anywhere, and I hear about it, and it feels like it's just a another version of the virtue signaling you see from people on the left, and also a way of separating, it, it's a way of saying, well, I'm not racist because I'm for reparations. What would, it, what would it look like? What would it mean? What, how would it be completed? How would we actually do this? Uh, in terms of reparations, the answer is that they don't know. No one really knows. Um, I, I think it's, I think it's actually uh, immoral because what you're talking about is taking property from people today th- who have no fault in the matter and giving prop or after you've seized it. So you're talking about seizing private property and giving it to people based upon the oppression that their ancestors received and you have to start asking questions like well why does this only apply then to uh african americans in this country or does it only apply to african americans in this country uh do do we have other reparations movements that we have to reckon with and then we start to wonder who does the accounting here it all falls apart once you start to look at it and, and you try to implement this thinking but i get the sense that it's just about just like this this uh, reparations happy hour it's just about bringing it up i think it's toxic i really do i think the 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 ideas uh, that it promotes and the results that it will create are, are toxic but reparations happy hour it's now a thing that people are doing i have a feeling you're going to see uh, more of it too but uh, I, you know there's trump derangement syndrome out there is not unusual at all you see a lot of it these days but sometimes what I see now is the Trump derangement syndrome magnifies what is a non-story into a national news story just because someone takes a petty swipe at Trump of some kind or another. I'm going to tell you about a an English teacher who seems rather, uh, rather impressed with herself for no apparent reason, who wanted to take the White House to task on a form letter. That's coming up. You know, there's fake news, and then there's non-news. And what I mean by that is, I've seen a habit recently of people, or, or let's just say news organizations, although people who work for the news organizations, who will decide that they're going to make something that is clearly not newsworthy a news item. And I have to stop and say to myself, well, 
hold on a second. Uh, what exactly is pushing this? Why would a major news organization pick up some of these stories? And what you see as a uh, a tie-in, as a uh, overall characteristic of this trend, is you've got people who hate Trump so much that they'll essentially report on the scrawls in a bathroom of a rest stop if it's mean about Trump. They, they really have nothing, uh, nothing to govern them from just running with anything. That's, and a, a great example of this, and I tweeted out earlier today, I was like, this is not news, okay? But you have Ivan Mason, who received a form letter from Trump, and Mason, who is a retired school teacher in Atlanta, quote, thought the riddle, uh, thought the letter was so riddled with errors that she marked it up, posted a photo of it on Facebook, and sent the corrected version back to the right house, uh, the White House, um, and the New York Times thought that this was a story. I mean, the New York Times reported on this, folks. I, I need somebody to to explain to me how anyone could believe that this was somehow newsworthy at, at a la- at a national newspaper letter. I mean, this is the most crappy, and you're probably buck where I'm even talking about it because it's so crappy and boring. This woman writes back a form letter to the president. I mean, this is up there with reporting on what somebody wrote on on their like cardboard sign in the subway proclaiming the end of the world is near. I mean, this is really, I don't know, this is just loser stuff from New York Times, CNN reported on it too. And on top of that, uh, you have that some of what she thinks need to be corrected are, by the way, the New York Times put a put a photo up of it. I mean, they really ran, this wasn't just a little side news item. They really tried to go with this. And she corrects things that aren't really even wrong, right? She's just, she thinks she's, folks, she's looking at this like she's a teacher and she's trying to uh, tell Trump or tell the person that wrote this letter. It's a form letter from the White House, not a letter from Trump, but she's correcting Trump's White House, not just on grammar, but as though she's supposed to grade this thing. There's a sentence, for example, about a rule banning devices that turn legal guns into illegal machine guns, she writes, explain rule. Um, n- no, that's not how this works. And then at the end, she writes, for example, or in response, the letter is, thank you again for writing. As president, one of my top priorities is the safety of America's youth who are the future leaders of our great nation. Um, And she writes, OMG, this is wrong, I guess because the capitalization of nation there. But there's a couple things. First of all, who the heck cares? Second of all, the White House style guide is actually different than, as I understand, I've never worked in the White House, it's different than the style guide you have for for others, for AP, for uh, Strunk and White, if if I remember those guys. Um, So this is all just crap. She writes at the very top, have you tried grammar and style check? And she and she's correcting their, their capitalization in this letter. Uh, okay, so why is the New York Times reporting on this? There's a whole piece on this, folks. And CNN reports on it as well. 
I mean, this woman is is really engaged in what I think you could call a cry for help. You're correcting a form letter that wasn't sent to you for any particular reason, right? She writes in with her views on gun safety. She gets this form letter in response. You know, does she also respond when she like does a customer feedback survey to the thank you email, like you know that says thank you for taking our survey? She's like, well, tell me this, Mister Survey Man. No, there isn't a survey man or woman. It's an electronic program. It's it's not really even a courtesy. It's just a machine that's sending this to you. Uh, it, it's pretty amazing. This was reported on like it's a story. And it just goes to show you that Trump derangement syndrome is not just for individuals. The, the Trump derangement syndrome of one person will then be magnified by the anti-Trump media complex to pretend that it's a story. How different is this really from them saying, you know, we saw someone write something on a bathroom wall about how terrible Trump is as president. We're just bringing you the news, sir. Just the facts, sir. I, I didn't need to know about this lady's bizarre and delusional response to a White House form letter. But the biggest news outlets in the country figured, yeah, Trump can't spell. Yeah, even though Trump didn't write this. Kind of forces you to ask the question, when you look at all this, who's really the idiot here? It's not Trump. The show ain't over yet, folks. Here's where you take over. Keeping it real. Team Buck, it's time for roll call. Bow. Yeah, time for some roll call. Oh my, oh my. So excited to hear from all you. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton on the roll call. That's how you get in on this action. I'll have producer Mike remind me to get to our email inbox as well later this week. But today, it's going to be via the Facebook. Let me tell you all also, next week will be the first week of our the Fireside Chill Chat that will be the Freedom Hut with Buck Sexton. The podcast is launching. Very excited to uh, have a, a relaxed format where, you know what, I don't, I don't have any commercial breaks. Um, I can pretty much say whatever's on my mind. I don't have to worry about any of that. FCC stuff, although no, it, it will be. I'm going to keep it clean lyrics, obviously, but I'm just saying some of the jokes occasionally that I would like to make on air, I'm like, is that a little too much of the uh, scatological, a little, little too much potty humor for a nationally broadcast radio show? I'm just saying the podcast is going to be a little more experimental, a little more laid back, and I'm very much hoping you'll all check it out. The Freedom Hub with Buck Sexton. It's not up yet, so you can't find it yet, but I just want you all to know about it. All right, let's get to your thoughts. William, up first. Okay, I've got a way that the NFL uh, NFL players can express themselves and not lose more fans. Stand for the flag, but never talk about football in an interview again. Huh. What? Never talk about football in an interview again? I'd be interested to hear what they have to say. To be honest, all they do in interviews is talk about how great they are anyway. These are all college-educated men with what appears to be a strong constitution. I'd love to hear their grievances in a sane, constructive manner. I'd love to have them stand for the flag and talk about the plight of black men in America today. Um, hmm. I can't tell if William is, I, you know, I'm doing this in real time. 
if I, th- I think he's being, I don't know if he's being sarcastic or serious. So I'm just going to say, okay, William, thank you for your note. And there you go. Um, I, I really, I couldn't tell from the way he wrote it and it was b- rather long. So next up is Dan. All right. All right. Hey Buck, love your show. I voted for Hillary. I got over the election results in a couple of minutes. Uh, I volunteered in Pennsylvania to bring in Hillary voters. My volunteer position was terminated abruptly. Love your show. Again, lots uh, lots and lots of hours behind the mic. Talent. Okay. Thank you, Dan. That's very nice of you. I appreciate it. Uh, thanks for the words of, of support. Thomas. Hey, what's up, buddy? Buck, don't you think it's time for you and all the other conservative TV and radio show hosts to stop referring to the politicians and activists and their campaign to destroy this country as being on the left and call them what they really are, radical socialists. They don't hide it anymore. So why do you and all the others continue to portray them as misdirected liberals or the left? It's pretty obvious when they openly oppose defending our borders, work collectively collectively to undermine the country and defend terrorists like MS-13, and they have no interest in the U.S. as a sovereign nation. Call them radical socialists. That's what they are. Uh, well, Thomas, you know, there's there are some people on the left who are radical socialists. In fact, I spoke to a big Bernie Sanders supporter today, not just a supporter, somebody very involved with Bernie Sanders. And I asked him, I said, look, are, are you guys, do you think that you've rehabilitated for the purposes of the American electorate, the concept of, uh, you know, democratic socialist? And they think that they have. Which uh, I don't know if you know what the polling would show on that. My guess is that they haven't, and my guess is that that is not, in fact, uh, an, an accurate portrayal of the Amer- of American public opinion on the notion of democratic socialist. But I could be wrong on that. It's a crazy world we live in. But the left covers, uh, my friend Thomas, a broad range of things, and that I think. Uh, would include some ideologies that you couldn't, well, I know it would include some ideologies that you couldn't uh, necessarily accurately describe as radical socialists, right? So there's a span on the left. You know, there are what what we call uh, moderate Democrats, maybe, although you never hear that term. There are some. Uh, Next up here, we have Matthew, who who wrote in a movie quote. You know, we haven't been doing as many movie quotes on Fridays because... I feel like that was, a, for a lot of us, that was a getting-to-know-you thing, right? For I was new here in this role on this, on this uh, time slot in so many different radio stations across the country, and I felt like it was, for folks who were new to the team, a way for us to get acquainted, although I do love my movie quotes. Uh, but if you guys think it's something we should bring back, I'm happy to do it. Maybe even doing more of them via written-in versus calling-in. Because I know a lot of you listen to the podcast. You listen a little bit delayed later on. So that's an option as well. But anyway, Matthew's movie quote for Friday is, uh, maybe you're not keeping up on current events, but we just got our, our asses kicked, pal. And Shields High, he wrote. Oh, yes, that is from Aliens, which is a fantastic movie. Holds up very well, I think, and is still really, really fun to watch. Uh, let's see. Paul, next up here. You know, Buck, I think Congress should spend 90% of their time in their own jurisdiction. With today's technology, all members of Congress can video chat with other members to get the business of the people done. This would have the representatives in the places with their the people they represent. It should cut down on lobbying and bring more attention to their own districts rather than to themselves. 
I think this would better represent the people. Also, term limits are a must. Um, well, Paul, yes, I agree with term limits. I think we'll ne- we're never going to get them, but it's a really nice idea. I think in principle it's absolutely correct. And as to Congress effectively telecommuting, I like that idea too, but I think a lot of members of Congress, they're all, oh, yeah, I'm so happy to be back in my district. It's so great here, but they like the swamp. The swamp is where they can have the fancy steak dinners. They can hang out with the lobbyists. They they feel important here. And, you know, you think about most Americans, they don't even know who their congressman, a congressman or congresswoman is, right? So I think there are a lot of swamp dwellers that don't like leaving here. And then they go back to their district and they act like they're all about that. But I don't know. Although I did have a conversation offline recently with a member of Congress and his grasp of the demographics and just the, the rundown of numbers for, you know, uh, age, race, ethnicity, average income, population distribution. This guy was encyclopedic in his knowledge of his district, which a lot of you are probably saying, yeah, Buck, because he wants to get reelected. True. But I was impressed with his grasp of, of the facts. It was like, oh, this guy really pays attention. So uh, next up here, it, we have, uh, whoops, sorry, Nathaniel. Hey, Buck, I love my daily trips to the Freedom Hut. I'm seeing a lot about immigrant families split up, children lost, etc. Is this new? What in the law allows this? Need some info befi- uh, besides the liberal uh Trump derangement syndrome crowd. Well, Nathaniel, hopefully I've, I've addressed this in enough detail today to answer the question. Uh, but it's much more, first of all, it's not just a Trump thing. And second of all, it's much more complicated than, oh, Trump wants parents and babies separated from each other at the border. So here we go. Um, Monica wrote, hug your news person day. Husband of Monica would hug all the girls on Fox News, but sorry, not you. Shields high. Hey, I'm very huggable. But, you know, no one has to hug me. I didn't know that Hug Your News Person Day happened again this year. I, I didn't, uh, I was not aware that that was a thing that happened. So, yeah. Dale, next up here, he writes, Hey, Buck. Really appreciated your segment about the cell phones at mealtime. It annoys me to no end. Don't know how you feel about referencing TV shows, but as this one is now defunct, it may not make a difference. Chip and Joanna Gaines of Fixer Upper HGTV fame started up a cafe in Waco, Texas, and put pouches beside each table for patrons to place their cell phones as they dine. I think there's a major backlash going on regarding the cell phones at mealtime. Thank you for flagging this, Dale. Well, buddy, I totally agree. And, and I, it's something that I'm, I'm working on. I don't pretend to be perfect, but I'm trying to get better at it. And it's one of those things where if you're going to be annoyed when other people do it, you really have to start with your own house, right? Start with yourself on it. And so I try to be pretty cell phone free at meals and be very, if I have to check my phone, be very discreet about it and quick and not habitual, right? Not numerous times. Oh, I got a peek at my phone now. Not acceptable. Uh, as to HGTV, by the way, I do love some of these shows where they're like, you know, Bob and Tanya are like looking for a house under $300,000 a year and they want beachfront. And it's like, Oh, let's see what they could get. Right. I, 
uh, uh, House Hunters, I guess. Is that the one? I, anyway, it's you sit down, you're like, how could this be an interesting show? And you're like, no, don't go with the popcorn ceiling and the small kitchen without the island. Like you get, I get pretty animated about it. Maybe I should have been in, in real estate. Uh, there you have it. All right, that's going to be it for today in the hut, my friends. Uh, every other day this week, we're going to be rocking out. I missed you because we had off. Uh, we had a long weekend on Monday, so we're going to really pack in a lot and uh, get ready for the Freedom Hut with Buck Sexton next week. Uh, please do download the current podcast of the show. Share it with a friend. Until tomorrow, my friends, shields high.